Well, good morning. So we continue. This is our uh, fourth in our installment of uh, messages with regard to discipleship. Thanks, man. Um, and so I, I hope that this has been an encouragement to you already as we continue to open the Word, learn what God is uh, wanting to teach us about following after His Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, it's been rich in my own heart and life, and uh, it's taught me a lot. And uh, the conversation going um, with, with life group leaders and ABF leaders and, and elders and, and also with each one of you has just been so encouraging to me. So we'll continue to, to learn. And again, we, our, our heart is that we want to turn to the passage and ask, what does this passage teach us about following Jesus, rather than saying, let's come up with three or four things that would be nice to keep in mind about following Jesus, right? So we're going to go to the text, and uh, our heart, my heart, is that the text will teach us this morning. Um, And let me just say this, because uh, several of you, you know, it's daylight saving, so we're all kind of coming in. If you're like me, you're coming in going, where is the coffee? Because it was an early morning, right? Matthew 8, and we're going to start reading in verse 18, and we're going to read down through verse 34. It's like three vignettes. It's like three settings. And so we'll, we'll, we want to learn what the cost of discipleship is from each of these little vignettes. All right? So here we go. Starting at verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of, the disciple, of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? O you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met with him, coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you done with us? What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. Going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Behold, all the city came out to Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Let's pray. Father, we need you so desperately. Desperately. 
In my flesh, I would make a mess of this text. We would all make a mess. And so uh, we need your spirit to help us understand it and to teach us about the cost of following after you. Help us. So for all of those that are moving through physical infirmity this weekend and, and this season of their life, we pray help over them. Your help. Would you make yourself strong and known in their lives? Would you help them? Would you give them rest that can only come from you? And so we uh, commit this morning into your care. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we said, there's a cost in following Jesus. And some of us uh, would like to make uh, following Jesus all about grace, and it is all about grace. But here's the danger. When we speak of grace, sometimes we inadvertently communicate to one another that following after Jesus Christ is not going to cost you anything because Jesus has paid it all. This story stands as a huge objection to that way of thinking. But there's no way, there's no doubt that we come to God through the work that Jesus has already done. But if we're going to come to Jesus, it's going to cost us something. And so again, we live in a, in a world that wants to say we're a Christian country. We're all Christians here. We're walking this direction. And, and what we, what we want to do is make Jesus as easy as he can be made so that the most people can respond to him. And in our minds, sometimes we even make him a little too easy. So the people will respond to the grace that we talk about. In this story, Jesus has no interest whatsoever in making following after him easy. And what he wants to do is he wants to confront the idea that you can walk the direction of your life, you can go your own way, and you can sort of add a little Jesus to your life, and that's going to be sufficient if you do it with a sincere heart. Jesus wants to blow up that concept, and he does it in this story. You can't do that. In essence, he's saying, it costs a ton to follow after me. It will cost you everything to follow after you. But let's look at the text. And so here we go, uh, first of all, is that the cost of following Christ is measured by our personal priorities. The thing that we value the most, and the first thing I want to point out there is that there's a danger in responding impulsively. And the first character we see is the scribe. The scribe is a man of Israel. He's a Jewish guy who has been exposed to, by sort of like this like discipline in his life, the, the, the teachings of the Scripture. So he knows what it looks like to understand the Old Testament, the Torah, to protect it. He knows what it's like to give up his life so he can learn, to be a learner. He gets that. And he makes this statement to Jesus as Jesus is saying, guys, all right, let's, let's go. Let's move away from these crowds. Do you see that again? Jesus is almost always trying to escape the crowds. Don't be amazed and enamored. Don't don't, uh, placate to the crowds. When there are crowds gathered, Jesus is usually ministering for a while and then leaving the crowds because the crowds often come for the stuff or the ease or the comfort that they can get from Jesus. But if we look at verse 18, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he said, guys, we're out of here. Let's go. Let's leave the crowd. Probably he's exhausted 
actually, from ministering to the crowd. I say that because just a few verses later, he's asleep in the hull of a boat during a storm. So I'm pretty sure he's leaving the crowd in this case, not just to get away from them or because they come for for comfort. He's leaving the crowd in this case because he has ministered to them to the end of his physical ability. He is exhausted, and so he's leaving the crowd. And this scribe, who knows what it looks like to follow after one who would be a teacher of him, says to Jesus, listen, um, I I am going to come after you. So here's what he says literally. A scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. He's responding impulsively. He's in essence saying, I have it within me to pay the price to to do this thing of following after you. And Jesus wants to confront that and say, "Um, listen, you don't have enough physical stamina, you don't have enough flesh, you don't have enough strength within you to come after me. And and he goes and he talks about the foxes, and his point in talking about the foxes have holes is to say, look, there's not going to be a resting place for you in this world. And he's not talking about a house. Jesus had a house. They're at Capernaum in this story. They're probably a a driver and a seven iron away from Peter's house in this story. They're very close to where Jesus has home base. Jesus isn't saying no one should have home base. He's not saying all of us should be nomadic in Sheboygan County and just wander around. He's not saying that at all. He's saying at the deepest level, for those who truly follow after me, this world cannot give you protection. It cannot be your home. And this scribe, probably standing before Jesus, ornately dressed, looking beautiful, wealthy, having found his position in society, Jesus is saying, you're going to have to give up all of that. You know what else he's saying to the scribe? Hey, listen, buddy, you have been serving in the church, in the faith-based, Torah-teaching work, Christian work, or God-honoring work all of your life, and you're not following after me. This is what the scribe realizes. He's realizing, I've been in the religious setting. I've been in, for you and me, vernacular, church. I've been in church all my life, and this scribe realizes, I haven't been following Jesus. Here's another thing this scribe realizes. I should be following Jesus. I should come after him. I should make him my aim. I should give up everything that I've said that, that I value. This whole religious experience my whole life is not going to cut it because Jesus is here now. And if we look back in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus to the scribes and Pharisees is saying very bluntly to him, um, listen, I'm going to teach you now authoritatively As if to say, you scribes and Pharisees, you haven't been getting it. Listen to what I'm saying. And this scribe is saying, I know I've not been following you. I know I should follow you. I'm right here on the cusp. But he's trusting his own strength and thinks he has the stamina within him to follow after. Listen, if you think you, if I think I have the stamina and strength within me to just, in a kind of a fleshly, sort of go through the motions way, keep going the direction I'm going with my life, keep going the way I want to go and just add a little Jesus. Jesus is here to tell you that's insufficient. It's not going to cut it. For you and me to follow after Jesus our character, our dreams, our understanding of what life is about, 
our understanding that this world cannot harbor us, can never be our true home. We can't live for this life. All of these things Jesus is trying to blow up in the life of this scribe as he comes to him and says, you know, I'm going to follow you. He makes this public statement in front of everyone. Hey, guys, I want you all to hear this. I'm going to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, you're not going to be able to give what you think you can give, and this world cannot be your home. So are you a true follower of Jesus this morning? Have you considered the fact that you can't, that I can't just keep going through the motions, doing life how I want, with the same goals, the same dreams, the same values, the same character, the same direction of life, and just add a little bit of Jesus as I go? That if I come face to face with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, you see what he says, the scribe says to him, hey, teacher, I will follow you. You know, every time Matthew uses that term, he is talking about someone who doesn't understand who Jesus really is. The phrase teacher is accurate, but it's not adequate. It's accurate, but it's not enough. And that's exactly what this disciple is doing. He's saying, you're the teacher. And Jesus is saying, you're not quite there yet. You don't get that. You can't keep going the direction you're going with your life and in a 180 sort of way, follow after me. So listen, we've got to be very careful that we do not respond impulsively to the call of Jesus. But there's a second thing here. We should not respond. There's a danger in responding conditionally. This is the danger you and I face the most. We can make conditions on following Jesus sound very noble. I'm a young person in Sheboygan. I'll follow Jesus more closely when I have a family. I'll follow Jesus more closely after college. I'll follow Jesus more closely, but man, have you met my wife? Boy, it's hard to follow Jesus alongside of her. Have you met my husband? I mean, come on. You have no idea how difficult it is to follow Jesus in my scenario. And if you look at the the passage here in verse uh, 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, he gets his name right. You, You know what the word Lord means? One who rules over. One who has all authority. One who calls the shots completely in my life. Lord, Let me first go and bury my father. Now, at first glance, that's a noble condition. Of course. But most commentators believe, and I know you've heard this before, that this guy was not talking about a a sick father who would die any minute. He was talking about an, an aging father who would eventually someday pass away. They didn't know when he was going to pass away. He was probably pretty healthy, honestly. And so we don't know if if basically he just said, look, I would follow you, Lord, but I've got this dream for my life that I've always had, and that's that I would be there to the end for mom and dad, and I have to stay right here in this place. And, you know, that's kind of how I envision my life working out. And after that, maybe he was saying this, I'm broke. We're going to see in this passage time and time and time again, there's a reference to money in this passage. Maybe what he's saying is, after my dad passes away and I get my inheritance, I'll have enough self 
funded security, I can afford to follow after you at that point. But right now, I just, I'm not ready to follow after you. Listen, when we place even noble conditions on following after Jesus, we are saying to Jesus, I am not following you now. Don't think that your childhood, your lack of motivation to choose to forgive what happened to you back then, that's not a condition that's okay. Jesus would look you in the face and say, look, are you afraid? You, you got issues? Listen, come follow me. Don't put a condition on that. Don't say there's a time in the future when my life will finally be ideal. And at that point in the future, when my life is more ideal, then I will follow after you, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you're saying no to me. You're just saying no. Don't, disciples of Jesus, don't put conditions on the timing of following after Jesus Christ. They follow in the day that he invites them to come and follow. Has Jesus come and looked you in the eye and invited you to come and follow? Then today's the day. It's time to lose the excuses. It's time to say the, the, all these conditions that I've been placing on, the, the, the ideal and perfect day to follow Jesus will never come in this world. And you and I need to realize that if we are waiting for that day to come, we're really just saying no to Jesus right now. We're saying no. I'm not going to follow you right now. Listen, in comparison to our love for Jesus, it's almost as if we, we hate all the people in the world. Now that's found from in Luke uh, chapter 14, verse 26. It's not saying you should hate your mom and dad. It's saying the priority of your life is to love Jesus, even if it means not obeying your parents anymore, right? So you're going to follow Jesus no matter where mom and dad are in terms of the age, right? So, and again, this isn't saying that everybody who follows Jesus should leave their aging father. Wherever your aging father is, just up and leave him because Jesus wants you to follow him. So many times you can stay right where you're at, but here's the issue. Jesus isn't talking about just the condition of the, the proximity. He's not talking about a map. He's talking about this guy's heart. He's talking about this guy's willingness to leave everything he thought about his life and, and come and give complete homage to Jesus. That is to make him Lord in his heart. He's called him Lord, but he's saying, Lord, I've got a condition. One who rules over me, I've got a condition on following after you, and Jesus won't let him get away with that. Disciples of Christ do not wait till the conditions are ideal to follow, and we give up our nice earthly plans to say yes, to say yes to Christ. Now, the cost of following Christ is not only measured by these personal priorities, but it's also measured by some physical challenges. We are going to have challenges when we follow after Jesus. Many of you can attest to that. You have literally, you have physical challenges in following Jesus. There's stuff in your life that's not as you thought it would be, and there's a physical toll that it takes in your life. Christ is going to test you. You remember Gary said this a few months ago, and I've been mulling on it this whole school year. Christ will test you in your area of strength. What is your area of strength? Area of service in the church, maybe? Leadership? I, I jotted down a few ideas here. Teaching. 
If you are somebody who likes to teach the word, you are going to be tested and tried in that area. Leadership. Parenting. Ah, parenting. If, if you think that, that parenting is the strength of your life, and maybe it is, you're going to be tested in that area. I'm not saying it's wrong to think that your strength is in the area of parenting. I'm saying if that's where your strength is, that's where you'll be tried. Because listen, the last thing in the world that Jesus wants is a bunch of disciples who can do it without him. What good is that? So he doesn't want us in the boat going out to this. The reason I say this, this area of strength, he gets the disciples in the boat, heads out to the sea from the hometown. Literally in Capernaum today, there's this like, like a, a place where they think it was Peter's house. I mean, literally, they, they lived there. They grew up on the Sea of Galilee. And so they're in the boat. They've done this a million times. We can handle it, Jesus. Go to sleep. This is no trouble. And Jesus is saying, look, I don't want a bunch of sailors. I don't want a bunch of seafaring guys who can live life without me. And so he leads them right into the heart of the storm. The ones who said, I will follow you, safe on the shore. The ones who followed him, their life is in jeopardy on the sea in their area of strength. So I don't know what your area of strength is, but listen, whatever that area is, God wants to bring you to the place in Jesus Christ where you can't count on your own strength to do it. He wants to put you in a position where you need to cry out to him, and we're going to look at that as we go along. Jesus will permit stuff that you didn't think he would permit. So discipleship entails following Christ no matter what he permits. He's going to permit things in your life that make you wonder if he's really loving, if he's really in control, if he's really present in your life. And so he gets in the boat with his disciples, heads out into the storm, and there's some crazy stuff going on. And just like them, he has permitted some stuff in your life that I know has made you take a step back and begin to scratch your head and say, you know what, if he really is all-powerful and all-loving. I don't think he would permit this. Maybe it's made you doubt him. Can I tell you this? The storms of life are not meant to produce doubt in your life. They are meant to put you in a position where at your greatest strength, you know you can't handle the storms of life. They are not meant to produce doubt in your life. They are meant to cause you to finally, finally, finally cry out to Jesus for help. And they are meant to prove his strength in your life. They are meant to show you that you can't do it, but he can do it. They are meant to be a gift to you, to teach you that this world, if you're just going to add a little Jesus to your life and go about your business and do your own thing and you have the strength to do whatever you want to with your life without Jesus, that you really haven't submitted your life to him. So they're they're meant to teach you that he's there with you in the midst of that. He will lead you straight into the storms in order to teach you to trust him. What has Jesus permitted in your life? Will you follow him no matter what he permits? 
That's the question on the table. Jesus is teaching his disciples in the boat. The greatest lessons and the heights of glory in your life will be learned in your worst storm. In the midst of that storm, you will learn that Jesus is present. In the midst of the storm, you will learn that Jesus cares for you. In the midst of the storm, you will learn how to cry out to Jesus. In the midst of the storm, Jesus will make himself strong. Listen, holding Jesus in your darkest storm teaches you that he is strong enough and that he is enough to get you through. And that's where we learn these greatest, these greatest lessons. Guys, Jesus is, is leading disciples into dangerous places, even physically dangerous places, not to cause you to doubt that he is able, but to prove that he is able on your behalf to deliver you. Discipleship entails not only following Christ no matter what he permits, but, but also following Christ in the testing of our faith. You see what, what Christ is doing here? He's testing them. Okay, you follow me. Here we go. Let's go in the storm. I'm going to test your faith. And so that's exactly what he's doing. He's testing their faith. 26 and, and uh, 27, verse 26 and 27. He said to them, why are you afraid? I don't think that the disciples were afraid in this moment only because of the great storm. When you get your bearings in the midst of the great storm, you, you can have peace even while you're still in the storm. Do you see that Jesus, can you, this is what I've been, you know, I, I got the, yesterday I met with Gary, I think I may have mentioned this already, 10 o'clock in the morning, and we're talking about what are we going to do, and I said, look, just give me the notes. He went through them, I said, okay, you got Pam, I'll take tomorrow, Bennett, take tomorrow night, great. So I come to the passage here in my office yesterday, and the very first thing that just jumps out, at me is this reality that here the storm is and Jesus stands up in the boat and says why are you afraid and he hasn't calmed anything yet that's amazing to me the the wind is powerful literally it says that the, the water is coming up and like it's like fixing to submerge it's about to submerge the boat their life hangs in the balance they wake Jesus up saying listen come on do something here and Jesus doesn't do anything, but his first question, he doesn't first calm the storm and then say, why were you afraid? He says, while the storm rages, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? In the midst of the storm, you can take your eyes off the storm and put them on Jesus. While the water's coming onto the boat, you can be reminded that Jesus is not disinterested in your life. You can rouse him. If Jesus seems to be sleeping in the boat of your life, maybe today is, it's time to rouse him. It's time to say, Jesus, get up. I need help here. Maybe while the storm is raging and Jesus hasn't done anything yet, it's time for you to fix your eyes on Jesus and realize that within the boat that you travel through these storms of life with, Jesus resides, and he is the, listen, the all-powerful one. Nothing's taking him off guard. 
And so if you're in the boat and you've taken your eyes off Jesus and it feels like he's asleep and it feels like he's disinterested in your stuff and, and you're going through that kind of world right now and, and you've forgotten that he's the all-powerful one, the storms of life can help you fix your eyes right back on him. And maybe he would be roused in the boat if you're trouble and stand up before you with it still rocking and he'd look you and catch your eyes at, well, the, at the top of the, the wave and shout out as loud as you can so you can hear him over the water splooching into your boat and over the wind rushing past your ears and say, why are you afraid? There's no calm promise just yet. Certainly no calm that has come just yet. Why are you afraid? If you control, or if you're afraid, Jesus would look into your eyes today and ask you, why are y'all I say y'all because it's a plural word there. You. Why are y'all of such little faith? Would Jesus ask you that today? Listen, if you're not afraid, and your eyes are in Jesus, and you've roused him, and you know he's the all-powerful one, he would say, like he said in Matthew chapter 7 and 8, and earlier at 8, chapter 7, oh, uh, this kind of faith I haven't seen anywhere. You don't have to lose it in the midst of the storm. In the midst of the storm, Jesus could come to you and say, now this is the kind of faith I've been looking for. Do you have the kind of faith that Jesus has been looking for? Listen, if, if you're like me, it kind of varies day to day, Honestly. I want the kind of faith that Jesus is looking for, but there are moments when I forget that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, even if he seems disinterested, he's disinterested in the hull of my boat. And I just need to rouse him. I need to stop thinking about what someone taught me about prayer and just cry out to him. I need to press the panic button in such a way that he wakes up and sees what's going on. And I need to do that with my eyes fixed on him, reminding myself that, oh yeah, he's the all-powerful one in my boat with me. That's what the storms of life teach us about how good he is. They had taken their eyes off of Jesus. They believed that he was disengaged from them. They forgot that he is all-powerful, and he looked into their eyes and said, why are you all have such little faith? Come on, guys. He did this miracle to prove that he has power over the wind, over the elements. He's, he's been teaching them that he has power to heal people. He has power now here over nature. We're going to see in a minute that he has power over the, the elements, or excuse me, over the spiritual warfare too. We're going to check that out in just a minute. But listen, you can go through any storm when you have your eyes fixed on the all-powerful one. If your life is characterized by fear or control, maybe you've taken your eyes off Jesus, and maybe he would say to you, put your eyes back on me and know who I am right? That's what he wants to teach you and me together. So it, as we continue to take a look at this, what happens after he makes this statement to them? Well, uh, uh, then he rose, okay? So he says, why are you afraid? Are you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great call. Great calms in life come after great storms. As Jesus proves himself. Now, this does not promise great calms for everyone. 
This isn't saying, if you just rouse Jesus in the storm, whatever storm you think it is, and you rouse him and say the right words, that he's going to fix everything, and there's going to be a great calm. That's not the point. Jesus isn't showing his disciples that if you follow me, your life will be easy. Quite the contrary. The, the, the ultimate great calm is this reality. No matter what happens to you or me in this world, there's a great calm. That is, that is to be with Christ forever where there is no, no trouble where there is no problem. Heaven is the ultimate promise of a great calm. We've got victims who are brothers and sisters in Jesus all around the world who would cry out in the midst of their boat with you and with me this week, last week, asking to be delivered and finding that they are being delivered to the ones who would make them the ultimate witness, that is, a martyr. People who would take their life in the name of their religion And they cried out, and listen, don't think for a minute that they weren't delivered to the perfect and great calm. Because when your sins are forgiven in Jesus, whether it comes now or whether it comes later, there is a great calm if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You you may, like Paul, who, who cried out to be delivered from this thorn in his flesh and and Jesus saying look at the end of the day there's a great calm and that you know your sins are forgiven but I'm never going to deliver you from that issue you you struggle with so I'm not saying here that if you cry out say the right words in just the right way that you're going to have an easy calm life I'm not saying that That's, that's not what Jesus is teaching here Jesus is teaching you that in the midst of your crazy struggle he is the great calm he has power to deliver he is the all-powerful one. Seeing Jesus work in the midst of your trials will astonish you. You will marvel. And I hope that this week you have opportunity with, with close friends who see the work of God in your life to whisper under your breath, on your knees, who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? Do you see what he's doing delivering me? Oh, it is a beautiful thing. I love when the disciples turn to one another and say, oh my goodness, who is this Jesus? Listen, never lose your marvel and wonder at who Jesus is. So what comes next? This great calm. And again, this hard truth. Every trial in life does not end with an earthly great calm. But there can be a calm that Christ works in your heart as you follow him. Well, not only do we have these physical challenges, but the cost of of following Christ is also measured by spiritual confrontations. There's going to be some stuff that goes on. Listen, in the world today, there are spiritual uh, tensions going on right now. I want us to be a church that understands that there is spiritual warfare in the world today. Now, every time your child has a cold... We do not necessarily need to rebuke the evil spirit within him, all right? So that's not the idea. The the, the idea isn't that all sickness, every headache, every situation, let's rebuke. Would you bring the child to me? Let us rebuke in the name of Jesus, this evil spirit of the cult. No, that's not what we're saying, okay? But Jesus comes on shore after this great calm, and there is obviously spiritual warfare going on. And I want us to be a place that recognizes, maybe not everywhere, but there is spiritual warfare in the world today. 
He's at the northern edge, a little bit on the eastern, northeastern edge, in the Gadarenes here, of the Sea of Galilee. And he's probably about 60, 65 miles, if you travel one direction, to the, from the Euphrates River. Do you know that in Revelation chapter 16, that this region of the world, not far from where Jesus is, there is going to be, there's going to rise from the Euphrates River in the, in the last battle, demons who live there now. So Jesus comes to confront these two guys who are demon-possessed, and they say, send us into the pigs. And then when they are sent into the pigs, they rush down into the water. And as they rush into the water, they move out into the water. And I'm just telling you that there's a connection between the way demons work and the water. And I'm telling you that there's definitely spiritual warfare going on in the world today. The Euphrates River, 65 miles from there, cuts through Iraq and Syria. And Revelation 16 says there's going to be a day coming at the end when the kings of the world are astounded by what the powers, the demons do coming out of the Euphrates River at that day. Here, listen, Jesus is marching history forward And he's going to do it through spiritual warfare. And I want us all to understand that Satan is alive and well in the world today. He has only as much authority as Jesus affords him. But for his own purposes, Jesus has afforded him some authority. And we need to be aware of that. We need to know it's there. Notice that Jesus says almost nothing in this passage. He arrives and, and these, uh, again, just like a couple weeks ago, we talked about these evil spirits. They identify Jesus. Oh, here he is. You see what they call him? The Son of God. Peter doesn't call him the Son of God until Matthew 16. And the evil spirits call him the Son of God in Matthew 8. They know who he is. And again, he, wants them, he doesn't want them to be identifying him. So he, he says nothing. And they say, okay, here you are. You're here too early, son of God. If, uh, listen, you're going to probably cast us out because you know, we know that you're going to, you have authority over us. The, the evil spirits in this world today, the demons in this world today, know that Jesus has authority over them. He doesn't have to utter one word to have authority over them. And so he shows up and they say, okay, uh, listen, if you're going to send us out, please send us to the pigs. So they sent to the pigs, down into the water, and Jesus is shown to be strong, having authority not only over uh, the the people around him, but then also over the natural elements. And now we see he's got authority over the, the spirit world completely as well. Understand the supernatural components involved when you are following after Jesus. Satan wants to show a counterfeit power. He wants to to deceive people into thinking that his power is as legitimate as God's power. He wants to deceive people into believing that Jesus is not the only way, the only truth, the only life. And Satan will try to meddle in your life immediately following victories. Listen, you see what happened here? Great test in the area of my strength. I cry out to Jesus. I see him deliver me. Great calm as we glide into this harbor that has been supernaturally calmed by the work of Jesus. And after the spiritual mountaintop comes spiritual warfare. This is not an unusual pattern. 
If you experience a supernatural, a, a high with Jesus, there's, there's a low, there's a spiritual warfare component coming next in your life. Get ready for it. We used to come to the district's youth conference and other highlights of the year for people, and we'd say, listen, here's what I want to tell you. You have met with God in a, in a profound way up here, and it's been emotional, and it's been powerful. Get ready. When you get home, there's going to be arguments. There's going to be trouble. There's going to be problems. Because after the mountaintop always comes the valley. Matthew chapter 16, transfiguration. The disciples see Jesus, and the, the, God says, This is my son. And, and they even say, Let's stay up, literally, let's stay up here on the mountaintop. This is awesome. Jesus said, we've got to go down, back down to the valley. What did they find in the valley? Spiritual warfare. The other disciples who did not come to the mountain were fighting over why they couldn't move a spirit out of a young boy. And Jesus says, guys, this can only be done by fear. Here's my point. We should expect that when God shows us and when God delivers us by his goodness and graces and we are at this mountaintop moment where we know we are weak and we know even in our area of strength we need Jesus and he's proven himself to us that we're going to come down into this valley and there's going to be a trial. There's going to be another test. Probably it's going to be a spiritual warfare type type test. There's a financial component involved here. You see verses 33 and 34. He sent the evil spirits into the pigs, and the pigs dr- were drowned. And so here's the, the picture is that we're probably in a Gentile region because Jewish farmers wouldn't be dealing with pigs, right? And so he sends them into the water to destroy the crop, to destroy the local economy. And that's exactly what happens. Sometimes when God comes and shows himself strong, there's going to be this disruption of everyday life. And that's exactly what happened here. There's a disruption. And so do you see what happened? These guys, these, these sheep herders, these farmers go into town and say, listen, you know those two guys? They have been coming out of the tombs, and we can't even pass by there anymore. We tried to put chains on them. We couldn't. They would break the chains. They're so strong. They are, literally, they were like possessed by demons. They have been freed. And even while the shepherds emphasize that part of the story, the whole town comes out to Jesus and says, you've disrupted our economy, our money. You've made a mess of our lives. Would you please go? Which one are you? Are you the one in the hull of the boat whispering to your friend, maybe through tears, oh God, what kind of man is this? This Jesus who would prove himself to me in my area of strength who has power over everything, who is with me in this boat. Are you the kind of person who doesn't fully comprehend everything about Jesus, but you're staying as close to him as humanly possible? Or are you a townsperson who comes out to examine how Jesus has meddled with your life a little bit, and you're not sure the fullness of who this Jesus is. But this you know. You don't want to have anything to do with him. And so you invite him to leave.
it's really important that you fully know who you are. The one embracing Jesus and staying as close to him and paying the cost and giving up your life and saying and meaning, Lord. Or the kind of person whose life has been messed up a little bit and he didn't meet your expectations and he's led you places you didn't think you were going to go and you don't like it. And you're saying, Jesus, there's the door. Oh, my friends, would we be at church who maybe marvel in such a way that we don't fully grasp everything about who this Jesus is or all his plans for our life, but we embrace him so dearly and we follow him so closely. We stay near him because he's proven himself to us time and time again. And in his presence, there is forgiveness of sins. There is power to overcome. There is ears who hear your cry for help. There is the one and the only one who can deliver you. Let's stand together, guys. We're going to have a time of like just meditation on this. Uh, band is going to come. Maybe you're going to want to sing along. Maybe you're going to need a moment to just pray through this. Because that's our heart, is that you would really have a time at the throne of God where you say, okay, what's, what's going on? What's going on? Which one am I? So let's go to the Lord. Father, would you help us? Would you help us rightly divide this morning in our own hearts if we are the disciple who, yeah, there's troubles, and yeah, we don't fully understand, but we are convinced and we know you are the only, your son is the only king of kings and the only Lord of lords, and we're staying as close to him as we can stay. Would you show us if we're that scribe who's been in church all of our lives? But man, we're just, we're responding with, emotion we haven't truly changed would you show us if we're that disciple who's placing conditions and would you show us if we're a townsperson who just has really seen enough and is saying look this is my region of the world this is my life i invite you to leave lord i pray that this place is full this morning of disciples who are saying oh jesus thank you thank you thank you for who you are thank you for what you've done